Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode. This week on Plenary Session, we've got Aaron Richterman. Dr. Richterman is an infectious disease doctor. He's at the University of Pennsylvania, and he has a lot to say about SARS-CoV-2. You won't want to miss this discussion. You know, normally every week you hear me say, if you're a fan of this show, go support us on Patreon. You get access to the slides. I got something new to say this time. I think the good old days are over. We're living in a unique time where people are very happy to extinguish voices and ideas that they deem unfit for consumption. And so I personally have gone on Patreon. I've supported a number of people who I listen to, the podcast that I love, and I'm encouraging you to do the same. The only way we can combat this growing force of illiberalism is to support with our Dollar Bills podcast we enjoy. So that's my plug. I'm back in plenary session, and I'm joined via Zoom by Aaron Richterman. Dr. Richterman is at the University of Pennsylvania. He is a card-carrying infectious disease expert. He did his medical school at UPenn. He did his residency at the Brigham, where he specialized in global health and did HIV work with Paul Sachs and colleagues. And he is now an infectious disease fellowship in the endless fellowship that is fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania. He's active on Twitter at Aaron Richterman. Aaron, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for having me. Longtime follower and fan of you on Twitter. You uh, same. Oh, okay, good, good. Let's keep it that way. <laughs> so um, I don't know where shall we start. Um, you're an infectious disease doctor, and you have been working in the clinic uh, this whole time. Uh, is that fair to say that you've seen you've seen it all from March of 2020 to the present day? Yeah, I mean, I've been across two health systems, one in Boston and one in Philadelphia. So it's I've I've seen the full gamut. The full gamut. Yeah. So let me ask you, the first thing I want to ask you, case fatality rate, CFR. Um, you know, did something happen between March and April, that first cohort, and the fraction of hospitalized people who passed away with SARS-CoV-2, and uh, let's say November, December of 2020? Because when I've looked at some of these studies, it suggests that um, if you were hospitalized, your risk of dying has dropped. And and I want to get at the explanation because it's true in every single age group too. If you're 70, if you're 80, it's not related to the the at least the age of people who are presenting. Have, have you noticed this phenomenon? Um, I mean, I think that's it's it's really really hard to get at that question. I think. I mean, you know, you're seeing different people admitted over time um, with different sort of clinical loads in the hospital mm-hmm. and different treatment protocols. I think it's probably accurate to say that you know the that the uh the rates of death have gone down over time but you know i think it's it's hard to know how much of that is different patients being admitted i mean you know when you have an entirely susceptible population and a lot of the the uh you know like the nursing facility kind of uh patients getting getting really hit very hard early on um with the very very high fatality rates um who are going to be frailer than the than age matched people just in general mm-hmm. um so i mean there's there's that potential component there um and then i think there are the treatment there there's, there's the the treatment component which is probably not 
you know, which I suspect is not that much in terms of the beneficial treatments that we've got. I mean, we've gotten a couple. That, How dare you? Know, you? <laughs> that, se- that seem to have, you know, yeah. have improved care somewhat. But I mean, if, you know, they're, they're modest effects, uh, probably something that we're seeing is like a lot less of the cowboy medicine that's potentially, you know, was harming people. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people thought that this was something that was a completely alien disease that, you know, principles kind of uh, flew out the window in, in, in many regards. And mm-hmm. so I think it's really hard to calculate or to quantify, you know, what the, what the downsides of that were, what the, what the effect of that were. So I think, you know, people, at least in the hospitals that I've been have, have moved very much more towards more like, um, more, um, disciplined medicine in terms of what they're doing. That's so I think good, that yeah. that's probably had some, had some effect too. So, I mean, I think the short answer is I, I, you know, I don't know exactly. I suspect there's probably some, some change, but I think it's hard to put exactly a finger on exactly what, you know, how much it is. Yeah. I've seen some papers from the NYU group. Um, and I think another paper looking at this effect. I think there is an effect, but I think you're raising a good point, which is what is the cause of the effect if there is a reduction in death? I guess one point you're making, excellent point, is that there's something different about the patients. And even though you're adjusting for age, that's just one of the risk factors, there may be some other um, risk factors you're not fully capturing, or it's that of the the first people who are 70, the first people who are 80 got infected, they might have been older, frailer, more likely to be nursing home settings than the the second wave of 70-year-old, 80-year-old people. So that's possible. Uh, The next set of characteristics you're asking is, our treatments got better. And in part, that was um, uh, dexamethasone. Uh, in part, it was, you know, the novel treatments we've had. Um, maybe it's in part sort of a better um, regimentation to how we're delivering care. Uh, the third bucket you put in was uh, the bucket I like, which is, the, I like to think about at least, which is, was there potential iatrogenesis from cowboy medicine, which is everyone's favorite brand of medicine, cowboy medicine, where you say evidence that's for people who've got the time to wait for results, and we don't have the time for evidence. We only have 5,000 people here in this New York hospital, and we have to give them all full-dose anticoagulation because who knows when we'll get another 5,000 to randomize. We never know. So we just got to give them all the full-dose. Um, you know, and that was the kind of cowboy that was emblematic of the cowboy medicine we saw, which is this jack letter that I'm making fun of. Um, and, and only because I think it, you know, it's not really what you need in pandemic situations. You need randomized trials. Um, so my question is, um, I wonder if you might talk about that cowboy medicine. So you were back in Boston. Um, if I recall correctly, some of the hospitals you worked at may have uh, had some uh, hydroxychloroquine intrigue. I mean, I, I think I saw that on some of these uh, forms. Um, you know, were, were you in the hydroxychloroquine business early on in March of 2020? I can say that I personally was never in the hydroxychloroquine That's, business. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I think that there were, you know, at, at least at the hospital I was at, it was never like a, a hard uh, recommendation to, to do it. I mean, I think that there were a lot of considerations about theoretical benefits of a number of different therapies, mm-hmm. including hydroxychloroquine. And so I think you would see variation based on, uh, you know, which primary team you were kind that's, of working with. And I was, I was kind of helping me. out with the, yeah. with the consult services there. So, um, I think there was variation and probably other places were more regimented in, in giving it to everybody or giving azithromycin to every, everybody or, you know, uses of, uh, tocilizumab or different, you know, anticoagulation regimens at different time points, all that stuff. So, 
where where I was, I mean, I think it was, you know, the the treatment guidelines were not, you know, were, were fairly evidence-based and I think gave a little bit of leeway for the clinicians themselves to to operate within. But um, I, I can tell you, I was never personally in the hydroxychloroquine business. I, I don't see. think I've ever given it to anybody. I see. You myself. were waiting for ivermectin, obviously. <laughs> right, exactly. That's vitamin D. Vitamin, vitamin D, D and ivermectin. Yeah, vitamin D. <laughs> I hear there's a new randomized trial of vitamin D. I don't know if you saw this. Um, it's a uh, it's the typical randomization. You've got eight hospitals. Five of them do one thing, and three of them do the other. You know, just your classic <laughs> your classic right. randomized trial. Classic randomization. Um, the typical typical method, of course. <clears throat> yeah, the typical method where you just say this hospital. And I don't know why it's four and four. That that was the part that really that really stuck in me. Um, so I guess uh, um, all right. So I'm curious. Um, you know, you're out there, you're on Twitter, you're processing a lot of information, you're an ID doctor, you're, you're increasingly speaking out. Is it fair? Is it a fair characterization for me to say that your um, confidence in giving your thoughts on an issue has increased over the course of the last year? You've gone from reticent to slightly more willing to talk. Is that a fair characterization? Well, I think that uh, I mean, in general, one should, you know, only speak publicly about issues that they've kind of done the background in. Um, what are you uh, talking about? <laughs> that, spend, sorry, that's spend, the wrong way. You're on the wrong website. Then you're on Twitter. I'm, I'm sorry, my friend. You're on Twitter. So that that may have been why I was more more reticent. I mean, I you know, I think as, as many people during this year. I mean, I've I've tried to do what I can to to keep up on on what's going on and keep up on the, on the, the data that are becoming available, which is, you know, which is just, it's, it's a tsunami really. And so, I mean, in areas where I feel like I, um, have had the opportunity to, to review the data carefully with where a lot of, you know, we're in, in a certain area where maybe other people haven't had the chance because of looking in, into other things or because a lot of things are going on. I mean, I do, uh, humbly try to, you know, put my thoughts out there, but, you know, I mean, I think humility is the, is the key to it all because, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that we, you know, in general think we know, but, but don't know. And there's a lot of things that have changed over the course of the year in terms of our understanding, both in terms of therapeutics and, and transmission prevention. And, and, you know, even in terms of like, uh, you know, different things about the vaccines and whatnot. But the, but the point is just, you know, I, I try to, I, I put my thoughts out there, but I think Twitter is a good place to kind of have have the back and forth and hear from the people that sort of disagree about that. And I, you know, had my own thoughts changed by that um, many times. So that's that's kind of where I come from in in being in doing that um, is trying to you know have that conversation. Hmm. That's a very interesting point of view because I think you you sound like a lot of ID doctors I know, which is. Um, you follow that old credo, which is better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open one's mouth and remove all doubt, which is something that um, is a good motto to follow. And it's something that I see people following when you have an in-person meeting. But it's interesting that the vacuum, the, the, the desire to hear something is great on Twitter. And so the vacuum will be filled with um, people who um, have their own way of interpreting evidence. And what is that way of interpreting evidence? I guess I would say um, many of the people who are interpreting the evidence for like the broad audience, some of the pitfalls I often see are 
Um, one pitfall is not really knowing the importance of randomization for therapeutic studies. I think that's just a classic pitfall. Um, and so instead of randomization, they're happy to go with observational studies, which, you know, many of us clinicians, um, particularly of a certain generation, we've moved away from those for therapeutics because we know how often they have been misleading um, because those mm -hmm. uh, those things are not deployed. Um, you know, the people who are similar to the people um, you gave the drug to are actually not similar to the people you gave the drug to because that's why you didn't give it to them. And that's the crux of the issue. There's something different. It's just not documented and you can't really adjust for that. Um, and there's time zero problems, which is always a problem with some of these studies. It's hard to pin down when the time zero starts. And so you have either immortal time baked in or something like that guarantee time. Um, mm -hmm. Um, okay, so that's a pitfall, but it doesn't stop a lot of people. Uh, ecological studies, which was, you know, you saw a few of those, obviously. Um, states where more people who fill out an Amazon survey say they wear masks have lower rates of COVID in some periods of time, and ergo, one can plot sort of that, that classic ecological. And that's something that I think a lot of clinicians, not the kind of evidence we typically like to hang our hats on, that kind of um, mm -hmm. wards where um, ivermectin were given do better than wards where ivermectin wasn't given. We're not in that, we're not in that business. Um, okay. Um, the other challenge is, I think, faith in modeling. That's something different. I mean, as a doctor, um, you know, you've had many patients in the intensive care unit, and um, often you have, and you have a wealth of physiologic variables um, from what's their CVP to what's their SVO2 to, you know, what's their pulse ox to what's their, uh, and if you wanted to predict what someone's, um, uh, you know, lung, pre lung uh, parameters will be tomorrow, their compliance, uh, what somebody's um, pressures will be tomorrow, um, it's quite difficult to predict that a day in advance. Uh, you can model the hell out of it, and, and then you'll often be surprised. Um, and, and so I'm wondering how you thought about this situation in March of last year, where, you know, you, you had the early reports come in, you, um, you, you saw that this was something unprecedented. Um, what, what was running through your mind back then? And you're, and you're at one of the Harvard hospitals, so, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that the, the first real concerning thing that, I, that, that really kind of woke me up to it was that there was a New England Journal paper about the sort of transmission dynamics of the first 400-some cases. Um, and that's when it was like pretty apparent just how transmissible this virus was mm -hmm. and that there was a fair bit of uh, – you know, there's a fair bit of serious illness associated with it. Right. So, I mean, I think that was um, that was when I got like pretty worried about what could happen from here. Um, I think that it, no one alive has really been faced with something to that extent, and I think that um, so. It's, I would say you know a lot of predictions were being made at the time, but I think that you know when that paper came out, it was clear like sort of the real dangerous potential of this pathogen. So, I mean, that's what's sort of going through my my head at the, at that point. And you're rounding this time. You're on service. Yeah, I was actually. I mean, I was actually when when the news of this was kind of being spread around. I was uh, in Haiti at the time. Nice. Um, in a in a hospital there and they were they were you know the people in this hospital were were extremely worried about this and you know doing a lot of preparation um you know for themselves and i was like you know is this this is 
is this really something that's going to make its way here? Like, you know, is this kind of uh, well-founded to be, to be concerned? Um, and I think that it was shortly thereafter that that, that paper came out. And uh, then I was back in Boston and then, you know, I was actually, I mean, I was doing an outpatient clinical year where I was focused on, you know, seeing all outpatients mm -hmm. um, for the most part. And, but pretty soon that was completely transformed where, you know, patients were coming in or everything was virtual visits or, and then, you know, the hospital that I was at had, was completely overtaken by, by uh, pretty, you know, pretty exclusively COVID cases, among, among, half of whom were, were critically ill. So it was, you know, that became the seven day a week existence for a while. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. So this, so you were in Haiti at the time when, um, when um, many TV pundits in this country were saying the best thing you can do for COVID is get your flu shot because flu is worse right. than COVID, right? That was the, that oh, was, the, that was what they were saying. Yeah. They're like flu is way worse than COVID obviously, because there's more of it at the present moment in time. <laughs> um, and that was a, a bit of your a, risk from flu in the next five minutes is greater than your risk from COVID. Yeah. Therefore. In the next five minutes. Don't yeah. worry about it. <laughs> Interestingly, uh, you know, folks who made those kind of comments, which, you know, you can pull up the reels, there's, they're quite, yeah. it didn't affect their credibility um, in the sense that they're still proudly, many of them proudly giving advice on Twitter, on TV, um, telling us exactly what it takes to get us to where we need to be, which is obviously COVID zero. I wonder if I might pick your brain on COVID zero. Now, mm -hmm. COVID zero is a sexy idea. I mean, uh, we, I think it's fair to say that neither of us wants COVID to be there. We don't want COVID. We wish we weren't, it weren't there. If there was, I always tell people, if I could strangle that bat that gave it to us, I would totally strangle, you know, <laughs> that pangolin. If I could find that pangolin and go back in time, you know, I would, the pangolin's not coming out of that cave. Let's put it that way. So, um, but we can't do that. We can't go back in time. We are where we are. Um, what are your thoughts on this as a strategy, uh, as, a, as a vision? I mean, it sounds great. And in fact, a couple nations are, you know, they're, they're nearly there. I mean, when, when the world shut down, Australia was, you know, maybe two weeks bef behind where the, or, I'm sorry, before where the U.S. was. You know, when we all shut down, they had the advantage that there hadn't been as many cases. And so they could potentially, you know, quelch what little they had. Um, when we shut down, there had already been a certain amount of transmission. Um, and now we're in a situation where, you know, things are getting better, but we're still 70 grand cases a day. Um, what are the prospects of this COVID zero to be achieved in a country like this? Um, and, and I don't know. And sometimes if you're, and is it possible that if it's not achievable, but we still aim to achieve it, is it possible that we may make policy decisions we wouldn't make if we achieve, if we tried to aim for something more achievable? What are your thoughts? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that pro probably, I, I mean, certainly when this pathogen was first emerging, I mean, elimination was a very reasonable approach to to take off the bat, and I and I don't think that you know globally we as a world you know did that. Um, you know, some places were successful in closing their borders and doing that, but in general, we were not aggressive enough early enough to to make that feasible. So, I mean, I think at this point, I mean, the reality is that I I I don't see a way in which COVID can be eliminated, really. I mean, it's just, it's so transmissible and it's so widespread um, that, you know, it just, it doesn't really feel possible to me. So, you know, but 
I'm happy to be surprised by that if it if it if it ends up being if they possible. Pr- if but, they, if they eliminated um, against your wishes, I mean, you mean against your best speculation that they could do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I would be happily surprised by that. But I mean, you know, this is there. There are very few. Dis- there are very few infectious diseases that we've successfully eliminated, um, and I'm not sure that this is going to be one. But you know, maybe. So I think the question then is like, you know, what is you know, I think given that reality in my mind, I think there's a couple like kind of principles that I would think about the the policies with. I mean, the first principle kind of as we've talked about, maybe this is obvious, is that like, yes, COVID is like really bad and it can cause really serious disease and, you know, public health measures that can, you know, improve public health vis-a-vis COVID through reduction in death, through reduction in serious illness and, you know, more proximally through reduction in transmission you know, in a serious way are important to pursue. But, you know, the, the, at this point, we know a lot about the transmission of, of SARS-CoV-2. We know a lot about how it works. And one really important feature that I come back to again and again is that, is that it's just, it, it has overdispersed um, uh, transmission dynamics, meaning that a very small percentage of the, of the people who have infection end up uh, causing most of the secondary transmissions. So 80% of the infections come from 10 to 20% of the people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these are like these super spreader type events mm-hmm. that, that are, that are very typical of this infection. So when you have this transmission like that, you know, you have very, very high yield at public health gains by doing what they call cutting the tail of the right skew. This is a right skewed. Uh, That's a good point. Uh, right. Distribution. So cut the tail. So if you can, if you yeah. can cut the tail of that, and you can get rid of these very high secondary uh, transmission events, then you you have a very big impact on on the you know your goal, which is public health. I've heard uh, a flattening curve. Think... I didn't hear cut the tail. Cut the tail is a new one to me, but I like it. It's it makes a lot of sense. It's it's it, yeah. It's 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 as referred to in the in the literature on this, but I. But yeah, I mean, I think if you, so I think you have to think about what are those, what are the, what are the, you know, characteristics of transmission events like uh, that? And we, and we know where, what they are. 50 people get it. Yeah. Yeah. Or just, you know, or, you know, cause most, most infections lead to no secondary transmissions or mm-hmm. one secondary transmission right. where as a few lead to a lot and there's yeah. very common characteristics, you know, these are indoor events. These are people who are very early in infection, mm-hmm. they're poorly ventilated areas, right. not wearing masks. And so you you combine all these things right. together and that's where you get it. And really, if you knock off like <laughs> any of those things, then you really can kind of not eliminate, but really, really drastically reduce that. So I think that like, you know, focusing that, that zero, zero COVID is in my mind is not a reality that we, that we have in this country right now. I mean, I think if we, if we were in a location where there were a couple cases, right. You know, That's then right. maybe you can then, and, and maybe we'll get there someday with right. vaccination where we can, we can do, we can have that kind of approach, but, but then maybe you can, you know, bring to bear the public health resources to really focus on bringing those down. I mean, thinking about like, I mean, if you want to make a comparison, like you have a Ebola reemerging now in certain areas of West Africa. And like, that is the approach that needs to be taken, like massive public health resources to, to nip that in the butt. Right now, when something is raging out of control uh, here, I think we have to focus more on those cutting the tail type uh, interventions. And so, the last kind of principle that I would think about with this is that you know, human be we're dealing with human beings, and human beings uh, there's only so much you can ask of a human being that they're going to do. Um, uh, you know, when you know you can 
you could go, you could, there, there's, you know, you could take everyone and say, you know, go sit in a closet and, and have food delivered and never go out. But I mean, and have you and tried, this, have this, you this, tried, this, and, have you tried shaming? Because I hear that's the ticket. <laughs> exactly. Just a little more. Just a little more shaming and blaming. Yeah, then you get yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, shame and stigma obviously are, are going to not accomplish what you want to do. It, but has, a dimin- it is- has some effects. It has some ceiling. I mean, there's only so much you can get shamed, yeah. <laughs> so, so I mean, so I think the reality is there's only so much you can ask right. of people. So I think what you, what we need to ask of people are things that are really going to make a difference. Right. And, um and are going to get get at cutting the tail. And I would make a distinction between, you know, people, what are we asking of individuals and what are we asking of institutions? You know, right. institutions and governments where where you know a lot of resources can be brought to bear to do really meaningful things to to empower and inform people. So I think like I think that, you know, the zero covid type approach you know, I think it, it, I don't know if it would imply a different set of policies. I mean, it would imply an expanded set of policies that, you know, that some of those additional policies are probably going to get diminishing returns when you have 70,000 cases a day. Right. And, you know, some of those policies may misdirect right. uh, or, or redirect resources from, from other things that are going to be really, really high yield that we're really just not even doing that well right now. Like right. there's, there's, they're, they're, you know, a year into this, there remain low hanging fruit, which unfortunately, you know, that's the story of this, the, the epidemic in this country. I think um, I was looking into their literature on zero COVID and I was trying to think like, you know, practically how is it different than a harm reduction philosophy or minimizing total damage from the virus kind of philosophy? You know, both people want to vaccinate quickly, both want to do, you know, they have a lot of things in common. But the only thing I could see that kind of sticks out as a potential difference was there are some people who advocate that like the key to get us to where we can pounce onto a zero COVID situation is a a new type of lockdown where we lock down like we did last March, but even harder, like not super long, but really hard, like really hard. And I was like, yeah, "Yeah, I mean, in theory, it's terrific, but the practical aspect of it is a politically divided nation which has many firearms, uh, and you're going to ask a bunch of people who are, many of whom are just totally sick of it, um, to lock down harder than they've ever locked down before. Uh, that ain't going to, that ain't going to happen. That's not going to, ha- it's not going to happen. It's not, people are not going to do it. You're going to have to put the military in the street. And then I even think that they're not going to do it. You know, I, I don't think it's doable. I think it's just, it's, it's just. And, I, mean, and I think the other piece to that is that the reality is that a lot of people have already modified their behavior insofar as they can right and uh, you know i think i think the the it's the exception more than the rule of the people that are just like throwing their hands up and saying you know screw it i'm just going to do whatever i want and i think and i think saying that that's kind of like where you know the terminology around a lockdown is sort of misleading because i think that you know there's at the end of the day there are still these quote-unquote essential workers who you know uh tend to be from Poor, poor neighborhoods, they tend to be poor, they tend to be racially minoritized, and they tend to be in jobs where they have higher exposure risks. Right. And so, and that's where a lot of this epidemic is occurring. And none of these like lockdown sort of measures are really aimed at that. impacting them to, yeah. to, to a large extent. I mean, to some extent, perhaps, you know, with things like indoor dining and whatnot. But I mean, if you think about like, you know, one example that I think is really sort of illustrative is if you look at, um, you know, like nursing facilities. There's a really interesting analysis of the the nursing homes in 
uh, I think it was in California, where they looked at they looked at case rates within the nursing homes. They looked at like sort of a network analysis based on cell phone data around you know what the activity was between the, with the, the nursing facilities. And they found that a lot of the, the largest um, uh, case numbers within the nursing homes and a lot of the worst outcomes were in places where, where it seemed that there were a lot of, a lot of the workers there were sort of contract workers who were working multiple jobs and traveling between facilities. And, you know, I think that that highlights to me that, that the, you know, that rather than, you know, sort of, imposing a lockdown. I mean, what about thinking about those, right. you know, these low wage workers who probably like, you know, if they get sick, like they come to work, right. you know, they don't That's have a choice. So it's like, you tell them to stay home, you tell them to not come in when they're, when they're sick and, you know, they just, they, they have to come in and go to work. And because that's, that's sort of the system that we live in. So, I mean, I think an approach focused more on like those kinds of things, which really are the, are the, are the, are the, uh, the origins of these larger outbreaks where you have people early in infection who are going into congregate settings, like that kind of thing, you know, is probably going to be much higher yield than doing something like a super lockdown where, you know, most people who are already sort of working from home or able to isolate or, you know, like that, that's not a big, that's not going to change for them per se. I don't think. <clears throat> I think what you're articulating is a, uh exceptionally good point, which is that, um, you know, and really what I think public health means, which is public health means the first thing you do is you figure out where the hell the virus is spreading. And once you figure that out, and insofar as that's spread by, and some of the things I've read are similar to what you're saying, which is that um, some of the spread is due to people who, through no fault of their own, have had to work during this time. They're the people who prepare the meals that we happily get in our Uber Eats. They're the people who are doing all the renovation projects that I keep reading about. You know, I was just reading the Wall Street Journal, and they're like, in order to make uh, whatever it's called um, school from home better, uh, we had a $200,000 renovation project on our house. I was like, oh, well, wonderful. That's just what everyone <laughs> should do. Everyone should do that. Oh, it'll make it so much better. I was like, well, yeah, but somebody's got to do that construction work, and those people are actually at quite high risk. And so what you're saying is that you take some amount of money and you provide it so that if you are a construction worker, if you're a line cook, and if you have a fever, you should not feel obliged that you were going to lose the day's pay, lose your livelihood by calling in sick that day. We haven't done that. And meanwhile, right, right yeah, we haven't done that. And, and it's not, yeah. it's not even the, that's not even just feeling okay about it. It's about aligning incentives, yes. right? It's, right. It's, so that you're it's incentivized. Like, to you should be incentivized to, so that what's the best outcome for you as an individual is also the best outcome for the public good. Uh, rather than now where it's like kind of an individual responsibility kind of thing where it's like, okay, like if you're sick, stay home. Okay. Like, you know, figure out how to get a test by calling 10 people and waiting in line and all this stuff. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it, nothing is incentivized to, to, you know, people have to swim upstream to really fight against, uh, to, 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 to get to a point where, you know, the public, health is being benefited by the way that they're responding. So, you, you know, you can't blame anybody for the way that this is going down based on the way the incentives are in line. Um, I mean, it's just wild. I think that um, that's what one of the things that just gets me, which is that it just really gets me that, yeah, I think, I mean, exactly what you're saying is, is the right answer. Um, okay, now I wonder if we might talk about the, the biggest challenge we face, schools. Now, some would have it that um, you don't, you never need to go in person to get educated again. Apparently, this type of format 
is perfectly acceptable for indefinite. Uh, no, I, I say that facetiously because obviously this is the shittiest, the shittiest way to educate somebody is through Zoom. It's, um, it's not a good way to talk to somebody. I guess, I don't even know if it's better than telephone. To be honest with you, if you have a clear signal on a phone, like that's the gold standard. And then like crackly Zoom is like the, the silver, you know, and, and if you can't be in person, obviously the gold standard is in person, but then, then like a crisp phone call versus Zoom, it's there's some trade-off there. Okay, um, how do you think through an issue like schools? Um, when you go on Twitter, it turns out that um, the answer is clear. Never have, no, the answer is clear. You know, it's, it's shifted. I feel like the narrative is shifting and I, I played a role in pushing on what I think is the right answer. But I mean, how do you think about it? You're, you, you, you must think about this question. Yeah, I, you know, I, I guess that there's, so where to start with this issue? I, I would say, first of all, that, um, you know, just like outside of this whole pandemic thing, that, I mean, education, especially early childhood education is, you know, one of the most, if not the most essential function of our society. You know, it is, it, it has the biggest return on investment and it's just, it's just a truly, and I think everyone agrees with that. I, you know, I don't think anyone doesn't agree with that. Um, but to be, to be fair, you, know, you have, you have actually done, you're biased because you've done 28 years of education. Isn't that right? You're, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. You've done Far 28 tonight. years of education. So you're, you're partial <laughs> to education. I've, I've got my bias. That's for sure. Um, but, but I do think, especially for the young, for young children, that it's, it's really an, mm. an essential, mm. essential societal function. And, you know, and I think I've got some friends who are teachers and I, really, really admire the work because the reality is that teachers are not valued for the, for the, That's for right. the service that they do to this, for, for the service that they do for our children's country. I mean, they're really, really undervalued. And I think that that shows chronically in, in, you know, the ability to retain and train teachers and, to you know, give quality education in this country. So, you know, I am very, very sympathetic to the fact that uh, teachers have been, just chronically undervalued in that setting. So now in thinking about like schools in this setting, I mean, I'm gonna sort of display my bias here, which is that I've been working in the hospital for the last year. And 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 so I have, you know- Entirely via Zoom. Entirely via <laughs> no, Zoom. No, no, right? you're in person, exactly. you're in person. You're in person. <laughs> so in person in the hospital. And I, and I have just seen that it is possible to control transmission right. of this virus. Right. Um, you know, when I, I, I remember back in March and April, reading some of these cluster reports um, from China, and there was one really memorable um, report from South Africa, one of those, uh, I can't remember exactly when it was from, but it was a, a hospital in South Africa where they were, they had a massive hospital outbreak. Nosocomial, and just, terrible. And it's like a, yeah, and they, it's a cruise and they missile. A, it just destroys everything. It's terrible. And it's, I mean, and you look in, you know, long-term care facilities and stuff, and and you can see the really, truly cataclysmic potential yeah. of this virus in a in a congregate setting. And so, I mean, I think everybody in the hospital was very, very rightfully worried about this. Yeah. But the the reality is, is that we've come to a place where I think most of us, um, at least in in the in the hospital settings that that I've worked in, were you know there's been careful attention paid to infection control measures. I mean, I felt really, really safe there. Right. And, you know, there's no, there's no social distancing really. I mean, you're seeing sick patients every day and, and, you know, and I think that there, it just seems like there's that, that 
hospitals were able to go from one of the most dangerous right. settings right. for this virus to one of the safest, where I felt completely safe. And of course, it's not eliminated. Uh, the risk of, elim- and, uh, of transmission is not eliminated. But you know, I've seen the occupational health data for for these you know hospital systems, and it's really, really, really encouraging. Yeah, can so you talk about is- that? So, so the precautions basically are slightly less staff on site than usual. A ventilation yeah. insofar as possible in my in one of the places I work literally that is literally meant cracking the window and no additional right. ventil- it's a 1920s building um, mask usage universal mask usage and then you know we yep. don't shake hands we don't hug we don't get very close and with those precautions surgical you know and surgical mask not the cloth whatever um, right yeah. and but I mean the, the point is that I mean outbreaks are you know what I mean it, it, incredibly rare we're talking about far less yeah. than what yeah the one thing I would add to that list is that, um, you know, in line with what we were talking about before, is that, you know, people are really, really incentivized not to come to work if they're at all feeling ill. That's true. Okay? And that's and I, different than medicine I, because for many years in medicine, the, in, the the mantra was, unless you're dead, you better show up to work. And that right. I've always exactly. been suspicious about that. But now finally we have some sense. Yeah, if you're feeling sick, you don't come to work. So I, I mean I think that I think that between that uh, you know really anyone feeling like even a little sniffle right. you're, you're staying home right. um, until you can uh, be ruled out um, and you know some of the features that were already sort of a part of a hospitals you know with the ventilation and and, and whatnots so, I mean that didn't change per se I mean I guess some places open windows and things like that but you know hospitals are pretty well ventilated structures right. for the most not. part at least in this country sure. um, and then. You know, and then universal masking was the big was the big change, and I and so I think that, you know, in the setting of the current the current era of, of precautions, if you look at the majority of transmissions that are investigated by the the infection control team, they are, can either be traced to the community, um, or they can be traced to you know maskless face to face encounters in the hospital. You know, people eating lunch together. Or people being in a workroom, a crowded workroom together, and you know, eating things like that. Um, or there, I mean, there are very rare occasions where you see like a weird transmission of someone who was like, you know, very early in infection and like, you know, self suctioning and kind of doing that kind of stuff. So I mean, there there are always going to be the one off right. transmissions that happen. Nothing is one hundred percent, but but it's gone again from one of the most dangerous places to one of the safest. And so, you know, I, I think it's a proof of principle that that it can be done. Um, and, you know, I think if the if the resources are committed to doing it, um, that it's not going to eliminate every single transmission. But, you know, when you have essential an essential societal function being performed, you know, I think you make the effort to, to put that together now. You know, so that, that would be my take on it. I mean, I'm not I'm not an expert on all of the, the school data per se, but it, there's, you know, fundamentally like yeah. there in, in my mind there shouldn't be no reason that we cannot get to that i yeah. mean it's not a magical virus that is going to you know behave in some crazy different way um if anything it seems like children may be a little less likely to, to be to to be How do you uh infectious yes. but you know but you know even putting that aside you know my my bias from the hospital setting is that we should be able to do this you've you made this point well online which is um you know, reviewing this data that the hospital has become, you're, I think you're right. I mean, it's, it's been transformed and it was transformed with not a whole bunch of things, but really sort of common sense things. Um, luckily, a year into the pandemic, we did the kind of research that we desperately needed, the important research, which is that we 
took a mannequin and we put two masks on the mannequin. And the mannequin is really doing a lot better. That mannequin, I don't know if you, I don't know if you know, the mannequin is now capturing 90% of the particles that are sprayed from an aerosol generating spout in its plastic mouth. So that's the research that, you know, you don't want to do that research early in a pandemic. You want to give it a good year before you do that kind of research because, you know, it's the kind of research that's going to be so impactful. If you told people all at once, one, two, they can handle it. You got to give them a whole year to think about it. I mean, I, when I read that study, I was like, what the, what are we doing? Why? I, I guess I was really, mo I was offended in so many ways. Like, yeah, I have, I guess I have no doubt that two is going to catch more particles than three and four will do more than to three. In fact, you can titrate it until your ear is about to break off um, or until your pulse ox literally goes down and it'll probably catch more. Um, you know, I mean, that's a good do. But I guess what really offended me was the fact it took a whole year. And I was like, this mannequin, somebody's been sitting on this mannequin. Not literally, of course, they had the mannequin in the office, but somebody has this mannequin and they didn't do the study for a whole goddamn year and now they did the study. Okay, and then there's another call that was like, you know, send everyone an N95 and COVID will go away. And I, you know, my, my part was like, I was like, have you worn, I was like, listen, I've worn N95 to do bone marrows and such. And I'll tell you, you wear an N95 for 90 minutes while you try to do something physical and I mean, the beads of sweat just rim, you know, just dripping down your, and it just cu cutting into your face. I mean, when you're really wearing it right, right? So you really want to avoid. Okay. Anyway, um, I guess the question I was going to get to is, um, I don't know where I was going to go with this, just to make fun. I was just going to poke fun at these things. But I guess, um, you know, I don't know, to some degree, you know, you're a proponent of masks, but you're sort of a sensible proponent. Like, uh, I wonder if you might talk to your philosophy you know, what's your views on it outdoors when you're running? What's your view on it when you go to the grocery store? What's your view on it when you're in the hospital? Um, are these settings different? You know, how do you think about it? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I'll return back to like that my sort of first principles about thinking about this, which is that, you know, really from a public health standpoint, um, you know, what, you, what we really need to do are, are cut those tail events, mm -hmm. okay? And so really, you know, outdoors, you know, I, I, there's a systematic review of, of transmission of outdoors those in Journal of Infectious Disease. It's pretty good in the last, I think it was the last month or two. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's, oh, there's I know this basically paper. been, yeah. it's, it's, it's been basically, I mean, I've never seen a convincing, like, case of transmission. Right. I'm sure the, it can happen. I know, but they're I'm all sure like mixed, happen. like you're in the house and then you go outside yeah, and exactly. the, you spend time in both. Yeah, they're all, yeah, I'm sure it can happen. So it's, yeah. It, you know, of if, course. If the, why why if, couldn't it happen? If the canopy but, but, is low, if the canopy, if you're in the bushes and this air isn't right. stagnant, no, I mean, yeah, but I mean, it ha but, so, the, but it's really low. It just doesn't really happen, yeah, right? You know, I mean, and if it does happen, it's extremely rare. So, sure. so you know, I think adding any additional mitigation at that point, I mean, is is probably marginal at most. So, I think then you're kind of exiting the realm of public health. And you're entering the realm of like, you know, personal risk tolerance. Mm, okay. So like if I'm talking to someone and they're like, look, like, you know, my number one priority is to like not get this at all. And I have to go to a grocery store once a week to get my goods. You know, if that then like that's not public health, that's like their own personal protection. It's right. like, OK, you know, put a face shield on, put in a 95 on for, you know, to get every last particle, wear it correctly while you're outside and like that's your personal goal but like from a public health standpoint i mean i don't think that that the marginal benefit from that you know 
once you're past kind of those cutting the tail type events, right. it's going to be super helpful. So just to return back to the mask question, right. I think, and again, this is my bias, which is hospitals and seeing the kind of transformation of hospitals. And the reality is they, they've used surgical masks. So I think, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's not a lot of good, uh, uh, better evidence to, to base this on, but, you know, they use hospital masks, right. medical, medical masks, as they're referred to in the literature, and they are... And that's been effective. So, I mean, I think that's probably a reasonable, you know, something equivalent to that is probably a reasonable thing to do when you're indoors with other people from outside your household. Sure. I mean, that just seems eminently reasonable sure. uh, to prevent those, you know, larger transmission events. So beyond that, beyond that, then, then I think you're entering the realm of, you know, like these experimental mannequin studies and like things that are more theoretical. And, you know, of course, I think if you, the more particles you 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 prevent from entering your mask uh i think that there there may be a benefit in some situation you know that, that we could imagine it's probably not going to be that many situations or else we would be seeing lots of transmission in the in the uh in in hospitals and things with people wearing surgical masks you know i saw this there was like a i saw this tweet at one point that was like talking about this choir the choir yeah, super spreader event yes, right yes and you know, and there was sang with so gusto. All, yeah, and so there was you know a huge percentage of these these people were became infected, um, and and I think you know they had some tragic outcomes. It's really horrible, but an illustrative event. And so the so there was there were there was a claim made that like well you know if they had all worn cloth masks, then like seventy five percent of them would have been infected. If they'd all worn surgical masks, then fifty percent. You know, yes, like I these very these claims, exact, yes. very precise and. And, and I was just like, well, you know, has there, you know, I, I, has there been any, you know, if, if all of them were wearing surgical masks, like, is there been any event where like 50% of them got infected in a room? Like that just seemed really high to me. I mean, I think it could, it could happen. And of course, if they're singing and there's lots of aerosolization and things yeah, like that, I guess. But I, I guess, mean, to to just claim that there would be fifty, that just seems like just seems unlikely to me. There was an El Pais infographic that really got into the weeds. It was beautiful. This infographic blew yeah. me away. If I could make infographics like that, I would be successful. But um, uh, <laughs> but every number in that graphic was probably spurious. I mean, it was really overly precise. But I mean, I think the other thing you're making a point is, yeah, I mean, I guess if you were really going to get assembled that many people and put them, pack them in so tight and get them to sing, um, there, I I just can't imagine... Like I just think the, either they either they won't consent to do that, or they won't do that with Matt. Like there's two different groups of people. The people who right, sing right, right in the middle of a pandemic, they're willing to have a good old fashioned sing. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll just tell you my. I haven't admitted this publicly, but um, I'm I'm willing to say on the record now, Lord. if I'm exercising outdoors, I don't believe in the mask. I just don't. I, I was oh. like, I mean, I can't. There's no. There's just no credible data, and I just can't. And ever, and it's like, and, and ironically, that's the one situation where people are most on the hunt, and I see them running, and and I've seen tweets where somebody said, some of these people, I'm really impressed. Some of these, um, th I don't want to, they're older than me, but older professors, and they're really running. I mean, 20 miles, 15 miles. I can't imagine yeah. how they, I can't run that many miles. I'm not that good. Um, however, they're doing it with like a bandana on their mouth and a big mask. And um, I don't know if you're helping anybody. Um, it, unless, I mean, you're not running through a crowd. Unless you're, you're, not, you're, you're running in the middle of the woods. You know, this is, this is the world. 
I, I think you're, I think there's, you're reaching really marginal benefit at that point. And I think if you want to do that, you know, I, more power to you to do that. Uh, but, you know, it just doesn't feel like one of those public health recommendations that, you know, getting back to this principle that there's only so much people can do. And that to me feels like something just let it go because yeah. it's, 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 you know, there's only so it's much people marginal. can do, and 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 the tank is, and in this point in time, the tank is running on E. So the last thing I wanted yeah. to talk to you about is vaccine messaging. Um, yeah. You know, um, the vaccines are. I don't know if you know this, this, this that the, the mRNA ones are 95% effective. So apparently, what that means is, is that 5% of people who get the vaccine are destined to get SARS-CoV-2. No. <laughs> <laughs> right. I was like, yeah, so there's this right. issue of new numeracy. Yeah, right. So that's right. They're definitely going to get it. There's one out of every, one out of, yeah, 5% 5 of people, one out of every 20 are going to get it for sure. Um, no, okay, 95% effective. 95% effective, but the baseline, of course, in some of these studies is like, you know, 2 3% over the course of 180 days, something in that ballpark. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, I got myself in a bit of hot water, hot water, because, um, um, I don't know, it, it was initial sort of a reaction where, um, I don't know when the first time I saw it was, but it must have been, er, er, um, maybe late December, early January, but, um, I'd never seen it before. Um, but I started to see the message that was like, you know, even though you've been vaccinated, you ought to live your life as if you haven't been vaccinated. So if you weren't going to hug your grandkids before, you ought not hug them now. And um, the more I, I mean, I, I just couldn't really wrap my head around that because there are not too many interventions in life where there's a 19-fold reduction in the risk of an event and you literally don't change your behavior thereafter. That's just a really not, doesn't happen that much. And then I sort of did some back-of-the-envelope things. I look at Moderna study. And after the two doses, at the time of dose two, so before dose two even kicked in, before you get that 14 days, at the time of dose two, the absolute PCR positivity incidence in the vaccine arm is like roughly one in a thousand. And you already got like a 60% reduction uh, for asymptomatic PCR swabs. And who knows what they're swabbing and how many cycles they're running. They're running 40 cycles, 42 cycles, 45 cycles, God forbid. No, I don't know how much these cycles they're running, but my question is really, what percent of those people are truly infectious? I don't know the answer. Are they? Um, but I do know one thing that they're, um, that of that PCR positivity, very little of it is going to become symptomatic. And I know that because the trial has captured that endpoint. Um, so a lot of that is asymptomatic that is going to stay asymptomatic, not the pre-symptomatic, which might be a different beast. So anyway, so I looked mm -hmm. at that. And then I looked at these household contact tracing studies, which there's so many of them now. And I say, let's say, you know, I don't know, 10%, 15% of people, like if you and I live together, I have a 15% chance of getting it if you have it. If we're living together, like we're in the house together. And so then I start right. to think like, okay, what's the chance? Even among, even among spouses. Spouses. In bed, well, it's, it's not that high. Yeah, it's not that high. It blows me away. I mean, I mean, they're living, they're literally living together, right? Um, yeah, and it's it's not, it's 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 the majority aren't gonna get it, right? Okay, that's when you're in the put together. So what if you you know you just hug them once at a dinner, you know, for dinner after you've been vaccinated? So I discount these things by an order of magnitude. I don't know if people like that, so I do one in a hundred. Anyway, so I I get all my probabilities and I start multiplying it out, and and then I and then I do some back of the envelope stuff, like an unvaccinated person goes to a Kroger, and there's a lot of people there. There's some non-zero risk. Um, we, people have been flying, we can quantify that risk. Um, you know, so there's certain things that we are okay with doing and there's certain things we're not okay with doing. And I'm trying to see like, is our emotional valence um, proportionate to the numerical risk? And everywhere I do it, I, I find that it's just not, it makes no sense. Um, and then the last thing is, you know, like we've got all these mask studies and they have, you know, we can debate the effect size. We know the effect size isn't a 50% personal protection reduction because of the Danish mask, but it could be 15%. It's not powered for that. Um, uh, um, but it ain't 90%, you know, and, and, and then nobody knows the effectiveness 
in the setting of somebody that got the greatest damn vaccine I've ever seen. I mean, one of the, I mean, not, not the best. I mean, but one of the best in terms of efficacy, mm-hmm. just really off the charts good. And this flu vaccine that we get year after year, it's just trash compared to this vaccine, right? Yeah. It's just, you know, Natalie Dean, the statistician, I really, I like her. Um, she um, had a, a great tweet where she showed how we calculate flu vaccine effectiveness. And I know this because I used to teach a class where we had these debates and, and this was the topic one year. So I got into the weeds on it and and it's just so crappy. Like the methods are crappy and the effectiveness is modest. Um, anyway, so, all right. So I look at this vaccine. So anyway, so then I wrote my little thing. David wrote the, David Aronoff wrote the rebuttal. And then, um, I believe I tweeted about a bear and in my, um, in my narrative, you know, so I, I wrote my article saying that like, you can, you can have some concession. I got a lot of pushback online where people thought I was, um, I don't know, maybe I'm a pro debt. I'm apparently I've, I've been, I'm a sleeper cell. I've spent all these years doing all this work to suddenly come out as being pro death in this moment. Um, but that was an allegation that was tossed my way. Um, you know, and all, on all other sorts of allegations ran the gamut really. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> And, and, and so then I just wanted to point out to people that like none of us really lives a zero risk life. Um, you know, we all uh, have some risks we do take happily. Um, and if we didn't take those risks, um, you know, people would, they would, the species would come to an end because dating would be over and all these other things would be, you know, people would uh, not go out and out of their house and if they didn't take risks. So we always take risks. And I put this in context of all those other risks. Um, anyway, so I guess my question is, um, I don't know. I mean, I guess I, I kind of, I, I guess I want my first question to you is like, how do you think about life after the vaccine? What do you tell your patients? And those of us who've actually talked to patients, I think like it's, you're going to have to have a real conversation. You can't say what you're saying on Twitter. Um, two, what do you think about the Twitter messaging slash, and it's not just Twitter. I mean, I just listened to the new, uh, um, I just listened to um, like podcasts from new, major news outlets and, and they are really kind of on page with this messaging that mm-hmm. nothing changes. Um, the last thing I'd say before I, I turn it over to you is like, some people make this argument of like, and this is an argument that actually I like never made. And I actually don't like this argument, which is like, you know, if you message this way, then no one's going to take the vaccine. And if you message this other way, then people will take the vaccine. And I was like, you know, nobody knows. And we don't know. We don't know what you, I don't know what they're going to, I don't know what you have to say to someone to get them to take a vaccine. What I do know is whether, you know, this is the truth. That's all I'm saying. I'm just saying like, this is the truth. It's an ultra low risk. Um, okay. So how do you right. think about this? Well, Okay, so first of all, I think that there is, I think we can all agree, no matter what, that, that the, the risk completely changes, completely different ballpark after vaccine, right? Both for you and for the people around you. Um, I mean, for the person who's vaccinated, yeah. I mean, definitively, there's been like 90,000 people who have gotten, you know, uh, on some trial. Yeah. active yeah. SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, and I think zero of them have been hospitalized. So of course, you know, that's going to happen in the real world, but I mean, that's, that's as good as it gets in terms of preventing a bad outcome. Um, and then, you know, in terms of protecting others, you know, I think the original messaging was like, well, we just don't know. We, we just don't know, which, um, you know, people, which a lot of people who didn't really sort of understand the, the, um, the inclination in people who are scientists or medicine to, to, uh, you know, that when they say they don't know, that doesn't mean that they don't have an idea about what it probably is, <laughs> yeah. but it kind of means that it's a 50-50 prospect, right? And yeah. th- But the reality is that we we do know, and we have a, we, you know, we, there's mounting evidence that, that infections will decrease with these vaccines. We don't know by exactly how much, but by some probably sizable 
proportion, given that they're 95% effective against symptomatic uh, infection and some of the data that we're seeing from the Moderna study and from the AstraZeneca trial. And we also have a pretty good suspicion that you'll be less infectious. Right. Um, by simply by virtue of the viral. fact that you're not having full-blown COVID coughing right. all over lower, the place. Right. And, and now there's there's viral load data yeah. to support this from the AstraZeneca vaccine. There, you know, we can see this from natural infection. So there's, there's, and again, this is a virus that is transmitted that has high dispersion. So there are few infections that cause most of the transmissions. Right. And so this, this, there's a pretty good chance that this probably gets you under the threshold for most transmissions. So, I mean, that's a little speculative, but there's, there's, we have good reason to kind of guess that that's the case. Right. So, you know, part one is like, I think we can all agree that that different ballpark in terms of the risk for you and probably for others too. Um, and then the second thing is that the reality is people are already making these decisions, mm, right? People right. are having Thanksgiving, people are going to holidays, people are, and they're picking and choosing and they're kind of making their own risk calculation. And some people aren't choosing and they're going to these quote unquote essential jobs. And, you know, and so people are already in these risky situations and are already making these decisions. And so I think that, you know, to kind of pretend that the risk isn't in a different ballpark um, or, you know, to just say that things should be, which I think saying that things should be exactly the same is, is sort of, is sort of in some ways saying that. Um, oh, you're saying things should um, be the same means meet your grandkids because that's what they're doing anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, Exactly. But, yeah. but so I think like, you know, people are already making these decisions. Yeah. So like, I mean, the goal from a, as a, I mean, at least from a physician's perspective, talking to a patient is to inform people, to empower them, to, to make the, the best decision. And I think, you know, to try to align it with public health in so much as, as you can. But again, I think we're probably we're probably to some extent exiting the realm of public health once you're once you're reducing the risk by this much. Um, I mean, I think there's still some unanswered questions about transmissibility, and and you know, you, and people should still be informed about the. It's, there's other tools that can be used to to lower that risk should they should they want to. But you know, I think ignoring the fact that people are already making these decisions and are already sort of making these risk calculations, um, it only serves to like under inform people. And so, no. you know, put it, I think putting that together, like you have to, you know, I think the reality is that of all the tools that we have, this is the best one. Amazingly good. Yeah. It really, I mean, it's, it's incredible. I think like looking back, you know, when I, over the summer, like I, I was really worried that we yeah. were not going to have any vaccine right. or a vaccine that we really didn't work that well. I mean, when the, when the, it was Pfizer that came, when the I, Pfizer FDA docs, I mean, yeah. that was like euphoric just seeing that. The Kaplan Meyer curve there. So, Blow me away. you know, you know, I remember, so, I mean, um, is, yeah, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I remember in, um, I think I was on some panel in June and I remember being like quite pessimistic, like, you know, cause we didn't know they're going to be successful or not. And I remember thinking like, you know, I don't know, my mind goes to like the classic oncology or, you know, kind of world where what would happen is like they miss the primary endpoint symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 right. and then they pull <laughs> some they pull some asymptomatic PCR ad hoc, some bullshit secondary endpoint and seek approval with that. That's like <laughs> that's what I thought they'd do. Right. But then they come out, well, first of all, they come out three days after the election, right? So they, I think it was November 9th when they hit the press release. And then I was mm -hmm. like, I was like, oh boy, if they were three days earlier, this guy would be so much happier. And I was like, I, uh, I almost feel like it's a conspiracy again. No. <laughs> But I do uh, yeah. you know, three days after, and then they came out with it. It fucking blew me away. I was like, I almost, I like, I was, in, I didn't believe it. And then I, when I got the pack and I read through it, and I was like, oh, it's, yeah, it's, can't argue. Um, 
because it was everything. You know, it wasn't just symptomatic COVID went down. It was zero hospitalizations, zero deaths, you know, all the things like, I don't know, when people talk about like reading trials and like so many times we argue about trials, a lot of the times we argue is like some of the endpoints go one way and some of the endpoints go the other way. And the mm -hmm. drug has a mar marginal effect. Now you got a home run effect. All the endpoints go the same direction. Um, Asymptomatic infection is going to be lowered. I don't know the answer, but it'll be between 16 and 80% is my guess. But I mean, um, the cumulative like lower reduction in transmission, if I had to guess, I'd say 70, 80%. Like it's going to be, mm -hmm. I mean, it's going to be on the upper end of the, it's going to be the glass more than half full. I, is mm -hmm. it going to be a hundred percent? No. Um, and if you're waiting for a hundred percent to get your life, you know, to go do some of these things, you know, you're, you're waiting for Godot. You're not going to, it's never going to be there. Yeah. I mean, I, th I don't think that's going to happen. The one, the one other thing I would just add, because you were talking about sort of the messaging and sort of motivations for people and, you know, just having had a lot of conversations with people over the years about vaccines, yes. you know, I think that in my mind, like the way that I would kind of put it very simply is that there's really no bad reason to get a vaccine and people have lots of different reasons that they bring to the table. And it's, you know, when, when I'm in a one-on-one -on -one interaction with someone in the clinic, it's not my job to tell them what the reason is that they should get it. It's true. You know, it's my job to have the discussion with them. And, it, you know, it's and it's this is like sort of how motivational interviewing works. It's like, what you know, what what would motivate you to get this? And if you're having hesitancy about this vaccine, what is that hesitancy about? Right. And what would motivate you to get there and having that discussion? And so I think, you know, when the discussion is very much just around, you know, one thing that this vaccine will do, you know, I've, I've seen people say, well, you know, like the vaccine is going to is going to prevent you from getting COVID and getting really sick from it. And that should be enough. Well, I mean, for some people that is, that's the motivation for some people. The motivation really is they've been isolated in their room for a year and they right. want to go see their grandkids. Right. For some people, it might be, they want to get back together with friends. For some people, they want to feel safe being around their loved ones, you know? So it's not really, I, I think that, you know, really to have the uptake that we need for this. I mean, we have to, we have to be open to all the the valid these valid reasons that people might might get the vaccine, and also you know like that when we are very honed in on what the purpose should be, then I think that does open the window for people to be like, well, you know, that's not for me. So that that is my worry. Yeah, and I think I mean I don't know everything you're talking about is like I don't know all the things that you necessarily learn when you're like actually a doctor and have to go in the office and talk to people about actually getting these shots and stuff. And I've had a bunch of people just this week decide to get it. I think I, maybe I think it's pretty close to 100%. I mean, because I think, you know, when you talk through, you know, I think people people want to have put this behind us. Um, um, what I wanted to say was, you know, you make this point about like vaccines and I don't know. I, I never would have guessed when I was growing up. I mean, I grew up in the 1980s and I never would have guessed that like in the 1980s, I don't think anyone nobody thought twice about these vaccines. I mean, we were just getting the vaccines and, and parents were happy to give them. And everyone was, I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't remember anyone ever saying vaccine to me other than vaccine. Great. That's the only thing I knew about vaccines. Then something happened. Um, um, there is, uh, I actually haven't followed it too closely, but there is a rise in the diagnosis of autism. And I don't know how much of that is underdiagnosed autism before and whatever after. And then there's this Wakefield paper, which is just total garbage. I mean, it's not even, it, I mean, I don't even, I don't even know, like people always like, oh, it, it was fabricated and blah, blah, blah. I was like, that wasn't the problem with it. It wasn't, it was, it was always garbage. It was like an uncontrolled case series and it, it made no sense at all. I haven't, it's not, I don't understand why they published it. Like, even if it was all hundred percent truthful, I wouldn't understand why it's not even close to, I don't know what it was. It was just totally crazy. Um, but 
Something happened in the zeitgeist. I don't know, a few things came together. People were frustrated with the medical establishment because they didn't have a good answer for why um, their child may be displaying some of these symptoms of autism or autism spectrum disorder. There's this Wakefield paper. Um, there's this, I don't know, maybe worsening income inequality and stuff makes you feel like less in control of your life if you can't live as good a life as your parents, uh, things like that. Um, and this strange anti-vax movement took off and it like unites like super rich, wealthy liberals with like ultra right-wing conservatives. You know, it's, it's strange bedfellows in the anti-vax movement, right? Because it, it's mm -hmm. like in, in Portland, Oregon, it's like thriving and then like this like yuppie liberal thing. I think there, you know, it has to do with, I don't know, feelings about GMOs, which by the way, the reason why like people don't starve, you know, and like, uh, you know, and what is quote unquote natural. Anyway. All right. So this movement starts taking off and I, I, I don't know this to be true, but I, I worry that it might be true that there's a, there's an, there's a reactionary movement of people who are well-intentioned and want people to get vaccines. And they are, sometimes they get a little harsh. I mean, they get really combative and nasty mm -hmm. and they like insult people for being stupid, et cetera, et cetera. And I feel like, I don't know, as just an observer, because I, you know, I normally don't stray into this space. Um, you know, I feel like it just gives them, it, it just fueling the other, they're just, li they're just sucking up your anger and, and the anti-vax is getting stronger and the anti-anti-vax is getting stronger. And you're like two poles of people just getting each other riled up. And the best thing we can all do is to de-escalate it, de-escalate the hell out of it and start to actually have some nuanced conversations like what you're talking about, where, you know, we don't treat, like we don't treat, I don't, I never hear people say I'm anti-drugs or I'm pro-drugs. We talk about individual drugs and the risks and benefits, and we don't treat it like a monolith. And we should do the same with vaccines and, and talk about them. You know, I mean, I was a little bit nervous earlier in this conversation because I was like, I don't know, saying this vaccine is better than the flu vaccine. I was actually a little nervous that, you know, yeah. that might be misconstrued as uh, being against the flu vaccine. But I think like, I don't know, that's just the honest truth. It is far less effective than the average flu vaccine, which I think averages in the 40s, 40 percentiles relative risk reduction. This is 95 percentile, and it's not an average. It's not gonna bounce around because this is what it is. Um, anyway, I wonder what your thoughts on that are. Um, that's not a question, but yeah. Yeah, I, um, I mean, I agree with it. Just going back to like, you know, again principles of sort of like motivational interviewing you know and, and bringing it into 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 the clinic space which is where i'm most used to it and sort of how i think about the conversations in general which is just like you know telling people that they're wrong like never really results in in you getting what what you're trying to get i mean when right. someone comes in and you're like you know you're someone comes into your clinic and they're like well i oh, know i don't get the flu vaccine um and you just tell them they're stupid like that's really not going to accomplish your goal, which is to get them to, to, to get the flu vaccine. And so, you know, I think in those, in those situations, you know, it's, 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 it's most helpful to kind of like back off on your objective a little bit like, okay, like I might not get them to get the flu vaccine, but I'm going to get them maybe to take one step closer right, to getting right, it someday right. and, you know, understand the motivation. <laughs> And just like taking one little step towards right. that, because these are, you know, these are, these come from deeply held beliefs and heuristics about the way that they're thinking about things. And, you know, that's not something that you're just going to reverse in a second. And, and you, and you get a sense of that, you know, I mean, talking about vaccines with people and you're like, oh, like, you know, you're due for your Prevnar vaccine. And they're like, what's that? And you're like, oh, it's for, you know, this bacteria and blah, blah, blah. They're like, okay, give it to me, you know, or, or they're like, oh, you just, they just want a little explanation. But then you see, you see people who are, who have very deep, deep seated feelings and beliefs and you know you're not going to reverse that right away and and 
And so I think that it's, you know, it's it's moving the discussion forward and having a conversation where you might ultimately get them to 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 get there. And, you know, and I think like when it comes to the the COVID vaccine, I mean, I'm certainly no like scholar of, you know, vaccine hesitancy other than just my own clinical experience, right. but I do wonder just like, you know, the people, I, I think that like you were pointing out, like there is this sort of movement with the, the Andrew Wakefield kind of uh, the people that kind of came out of that. And so I think that that's a very specific like sort of, you know, worldview framework. And so I don't know that the people who are hesitant right now to get this vaccine necessarily occupy that space. Oh, that's a good point. Right. These but, are different. Right. Yeah. But they, totally different, they, and yeah. they may be coming from it yeah. from a very, very different perspective. And so I think assuming that that's where they're coming from is, you know, may undermine, you know, the, you know, our role in, in having that discussion and being able to, to move them towards the vaccine. So, you know, I don't, I don't know what the, the driving, um, driving hesitancy is for, for among those who are hesitant right now, because I mean, I ha and I haven't seen good like very high quality yeah, surveys, no high quality. Yeah. you know, I mean, people are, the surveys are like, are you going to get it or not? But it's not, it doesn't get, you know, and then there's some, some components <laughs> of like, is it safety or this or that? But I mean, I, you know, I think that sort of remains to be seen what, you know, one, like truly how much hesitancy there is versus just like, you know, are people want to wait a little bit to see yeah. what's going to come out or is it going to be the kind of thing where, you know, you know, some motivation may emerge. And I think that, you know, it behooves us to not undersell the vaccine because, you know, if people are, because, you know, like you said, telling the truth about it is, and when you have a great therapy like this or a great preventative measure, like, you know, you, you love to tell the truth about it. And I think that if that convinces people, great. I mean, right. it certainly convinces me, but, um, yeah, one of the yeah, things so that, think, yeah, no, go on. No, I mean, I, I agree with you so much. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to, yeah, you just tell the truth. And the truth is that I think like most of us believe that it's going to dramatically reduce transmission. I mean, that's a damn truth, you know, it's based on the pretest probability of vaccines of this level will reduce it. And um, the one thing that I, I mean, you made, you made this point where earlier, which is like, quote, the we don't know point. But the thing that gets under my skin about the we don't know, we don't like, we don't know that it's going to prevent transmission. And then I was like, you know, when you tweeted the selfie of you wearing the bandana over your mouth when you ran 24 miles, you didn't tweet, we don't know that this actually makes the world a better place. You confidently right. said that wearing the goddamn bandana was going to make the world a better place. Uh, right. So where did the confidence go? It's all gone now. Bandana. The yeah. bandana in the fucking mountain air, that got a lot of confidence with this vaccine that's crushing it. That's not getting any confidence. And um, I just, I don't know. Yeah. I find it interesting. It's interesting. It's I mean, and I think that two things I think about that. One is that, you know, the the mask is just really interesting because, you know, a mask is not a moral instrument, right? It's it's it is it's now. a tool. There's the cross and the mask. You put them both on. Say your prayers. Um, and, you know, I say this as as, <laughs> as an adherent to the mask. I mean, I, 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 think it's, I think it's a great tool, but, you know, it, it's not a moral instrument. And, you know, I think the other thing you're seeing in that case is, you know, what's been what's being termed um, like a visibility. Yeah bias right. where yeah. you know it's if you can if you can wear it outside and that even though that's probably the least impactful thing you can do i mean you know that is your signal <laughs> that uh that you're you're fighting COVID kind of thing so i don't know i mean i i i was i was surprised by some of the but i, I guess i was just surprised by how negative i sort of thought the vaccine messaging was and I, i'm sure that comes from a lot of different places but 
you know, I mean, people are worried and it's been a year and it's been a really hard year for to go through that. But I, that, that was something that took me off guard. Yeah, I guess I was surprised. Um, I guess I, I mean, I guess I, I was, I was surprised by the messaging and then I was surprised by what I was, <laughs> what I, what I walked into <laughs> and I, yeah. and, and I'm no stranger to getting, uh, you know, getting a, getting a beaten up, but I was a little surprised this time. This one took me off guard and, and I, and I do think that someday, you know, some, I'm going to be like telling people about this and like with the distance of time, when you really have a lot mm-hmm. of distance where people, you know, it takes away a lot of the emotion and I'll be like, yeah, you know, people got really mad at me and they're like, what did you tweet? What did you tweet? And I'll be like, well, <laughs> let me read it to you. It was like, I want to write a children's book about a bear who doesn't want to go outside until it's perfectly safe. And he never goes outside and life passes him by. And then they're going to be like, and, and what did they say? And then like, I'll read the comments and like, he's a fucking asshole. And it's like a horrible man and indifferent to death. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, what the hell? What the hell happened? I was like, it was, uh, it's going to be really quite a joke. But okay. Um, yeah. Thank you for your time. This is fun. Of course. Um, I guess the thing I want to talk to you about, or maybe I'll ask you the last thing because I got a few more. I'll ask you a few, uh, last question. Uh, the global health side of your life. Uh, I guess I'm curious. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you have sort of a a range of emotions on global health because I don't know. I sometimes, I mean, literally, I I do have this thought from time to time and I don't tell too many people, but um, we're an hour into this podcast. No one's listening anyway. Um, The thought (laughs) I have is, is that we are, it's so easy in 2020 to look back at like, I don't know, the people who founded this country or, you know, people in the 1800s and be like, look at these horrible people because they didn't adhere to the moral code of whatever we think the moral code is. Well, I'm pretty confident that in a hundred years from now, thousand years from now, people will look back on us and they'll be like, you lived at a time where look at the difference. But if, if you happen to be born on this land, your life course is this. And if you happen to be born on this land, your life course is this. And they were so different, more different than anything, not justified by anything. And, and what did you do to stop that? And to me, global health is, is like, that's the root of it. The, 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 the differences in, in health outcomes simply by where we happen to be born, something we have no control over. Um, and I think future people will look back on it and be like, um, they will look back on us with the same sort of, um, I don't know, critics, critical look. We look back on prior generations for maybe not having done enough to stop bad things in their time. So I don't know, whenever I meet somebody who's interested in global health, I'm always, um, you know, very, uh, I always, I mean, I know, I know we're going to get along on some deep level because I think we both feel strongly about this kind of, I don't know, fundamental injustice. Um, but I guess my question is the part I always think about is like, what is how you, and maybe what I'm curious about how you think about is like, what can a doctor do? Because I feel like, I don't know if we really want it to the root, root cause of it is political is the movement of capital and political processes and how we strangle capital we hoard capital in certain nations you know and is all this aid and and resources and 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 global you know from patent regu- regulation and all these things that i think um in many ways make it uh, a lot harder for for some of these nations to, to develop um okay but also there's role for providers um so how do you balance like being the doctor the infectious disease doctor who has a skill set that's obviously applicable all around the world, going in and doing medical work that makes the world a better place, and then also the work you do to try to think about the root causes of those medical problems and fixing those root causes. How do you think about this? And 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 I guess what draws you to global health? So I think that you know fundamentally one of the things that physicians um, 
and those in similar healthcare professions, you know, bring to the table uh, in this arena is that, you know, we have the privilege of, you know, getting, of being able to have proximity to uh, people who are living in, in these vulnerable and marginalized settings that, you know, and, and, and having them either come into our clinic or if we're going to their house and, and having them sort of, um, potentially if we, if we have earned it, you know, open up and, and, and let us learn about, you know, what, what their existence is like and what, and what it means for them to be, uh, in, in health or, or, or with illness or living with illness. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we have a window that doesn't really, you know, come in a lot of other professions. I mean, even though it's not really, you know, the definition of a doctor. Um, and I think that, you know, by the nature of the, the human interactions that we, that we have the privilege to, to have, we have a window into understanding, you know, some really important truths about the way that people live, um, which, you know, people can write about from, you know, far away and from, you know, their nice houses in different countries or from, you know, from wherever, but, you know, really, unless you have proximity, um, I don't think you can truly, uh, get, gain any understanding. And I think yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a process and I'm not mm -hmm. saying I have all the understanding, but that's, that I think is the fundamental strength of, of, of our role. I see. Um, that's part of the motivation. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. So I think that, you know, that's, that I think is, 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 is a very, is, is very powerful information, um, to, to bring to the table and having that sort of person to person, um, connection. Um, and then I think that, you know, infectious disease in particular, I mean, infectious diseases, we're talking about things that are, you know, generally transmitted from person to person or, you know, or through an intermediary, but they, the, the, the transmission lines of infectious diseases generally run along, um, along with structural risk, mm -hmm. things like poverty and food insecurity. And so, I mean, these, these things are fundamental to to the way that infectious diseases work. I mean, there's a reason that you don't see, you know, much cholera in the United States. You don't see a lot of tuberculosis, these kinds of things. So, so I mean, it, it's a fundamental aspect of of the practice of infectious disease. So you can know what the antibiotics are, but they're not they're they're not really going to be enough in most cases. Right. So, so that that's sort of what what drew me towards that um, with my interest. And I, you know, my particular interest, you know, my research and and thinking about the way that social protection and social safety nets um, can actually be used to control epidemics. Mm. Um, thinking about like, you know, it's not just about giving people with HIV their antivirals, uh, because it's much, much more than that in terms right. of getting good outcomes and getting them to take the antivirals, then getting them to then have virologic suppression and not be at risk of transmitting this to someone else. Um, and thinking about the ways that social programs and social safety net programs can can improve those outcomes. So, I, you know, in my mind, like those go hand in hand, um, especially for something like infectious disease. But really, like, you know, with all of health in the world that we live in, I mean, these these factors are important. So even if a doctor is not an expert in them, I mean, yeah, you, you have to work. You have to work within the bounds of it. And, you have to, and if you don't engage with it, you're you know, you're, I think that you're in some extent doing a disservice to your patients by not just at least understanding that, that the framework within which we live. So I think that 
there's that aspect to it. And then I think thinking about like, as you said, you know, the, the world today is full of human beings and, but then full of institutions that have been sort of perpetuated forward in time by, by our predecessors and, you know, and those structures and, and institutions are, are built in ways that have built the world kind of like the way it is. And so in, in our world, we have human beings who are good and bad and everything in between. But, you know, there are these, there are these structures there that kind of, uh, by the way that they've been built, um, have perpetuated themselves into kind of doling out, uh, doling out value to some groups and less to others. And so I think, I mean, it, it's incumbent on us as citizens, not just doctors, but as citizens to, to think about ways to to correct that um, and to, to help, you know, make it make it a more equitable world. And I think as a physician, you have we, we have the privilege, one, of, of being in that position to hear people and to understand what that life experience is like. Um, but also, you know, the reality is physicians have a lot of power, you know, in our society and around the world. I mean, this is a profession that, you know, people listen to you when you speak and for better or for worse. Um, but, you know, when you're speaking on the experience, based on the experience of, of, you know, patients who have, uh, you know, revealed themselves to you and kind of let them let, let, let you in, you know, I think that you speak from a, a you can speak from a place of, of knowledge on that. So that's like my general approach. I mean, I think like, you know, at the end of the day, like, it's just about staying very, very humble and, and, and hearing those things and trying to just listen because, you know, this is not my life experience is not is not this one, you know, because of this unequal world that we live in. And so, you know, it's incumbent on me to, to make the effort to try to understand that um, with, you know, without bringing in my own sort of preconceived notions of what that is. That's well said. Aaron Richterman, thanks so much. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.